Uh, my friends, welcome back to another episode of the New Wave Podcast. Daniel DiPiazza checking in with you here. So happy to have you on this beautiful Friday. I just turned 34 a few days ago. I'm feeling very, very good. I keep telling my friends, joking to myself, I'm halfway to 68 now. Thank you for all the love and the birthday well wishes from everyone's and DMs and emails and all that good stuff. And uh, make sure, you know, if you want to give me a gift, don't send me any money. Well, okay, maybe you can, but rather I'd actually have you uh, leave a review on iTunes, on Apple. As my birthday wish, I'm asking, please, if you're listening to the show and enjoying it, go and leave a review on the platform of your choice. It really means a lot to us, helps us get in great, uh, great guests for the show and to keep things running and keep lights moving. And uh, and that's it for today, guys. Uh, that, that's it. The podcast is over and see you later. No, I'm just kidding. It's Friday. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the articles I have pulled up here, some really interesting stuff. Thank you for all the support uh, so far just on the launch of Power Packs. We released that this week and it's been getting good feedback. And one thing I was talking uh, earlier before uh, we, we hit record about this project is one thing I'm learning about me is that when I do creative work, it's one thing to do the project. It's another thing to complete the project all the way through, not just through the launch, but through the subsequent stages of promotion, because a, a creative project needs room to breathe. It needs room to grow and to develop. And most people that are that are consumers of your work. I'm talking about me, but this could be for you as well. Most people who are consumers of your work aren't going to see it the first time you put it out. They're not going to. They're not going to immediately interact with it. It might take them a while to uh, to really even engage with it. In fact, I think of the way that I consume music, and I am a big music fan, especially a big hip hop fan. And I consume a lot of different artists, and I will often not hear an artist's release on the week it comes out or the month that comes out. Even artists that I really like, sometimes it will take me four to six months to get into an album that has been out for that long, and then I'll really like it and get obsessed with it. And that is what I'm realizing, too, of my creative work I have to take in consideration of. It's that when you spend a lot of work on a, a project, a, a, some time on a project, you're deeply in it. You're in that bubble. So you, it's easy for you to, uh, to imagine that everyone else is in that bubble with you, but really you're alone in there with your work or you have a few people on your team or however you're doing it, but it's mostly just you in that bubble. And when you release it to the world, you have to gradually expand that bubble to bring everyone else into it so they can understand what it is that you understand and see what you see. Now, if you're already a huge celebrity, that bubble can expand very, very quickly because people are already wanting to be in the bubble. But when you're still working on developing your craft, your fan base, your, uh, your following your marketing methods, that bubble takes a while to expand. So you might need a few different shots at how to promote it, at bringing people's eyeballs to it, at creating unique experiences around it. So we're going to keep doing that with this mixtape rather than just drop it and say, hey, go enjoy Power Packs, uh, which I think you should, by the way, go to newwaveentrepreneur.com and you can download Power Packs there for free. In fact, we have a, even a discount code. You can get $100 off, which is basically free for the starter pack and will cost you $0. You just type in Power 2022 into the uh, checkout and you'll get that for free. But the whole point is um, we're going to continue to, to, to show this work and be proud of it. Um, and I want you to take notes too. When you create something, don't just stop at the creation. Go all the way through with getting it into the hands of the people and go all the way through with really sharing and um, and getting people hooked into your message. That's one thing that I appreciate about the Kanye documentary. When I was watching the, uh, what was it, Genius, the Genius documentary on Netflix, the three-part series, the one thing I took away from that besides just I really love Kanye's music is that he was confident in himself from the very beginning even when he didn't have any logical reason to be confident in himself. Even when he was being, uh, you know, videotaped and you're seeing that people weren't really feeling him as much. Um, and just by the virtue, by virtue of the fact that he was videotaping it or someone was videotaping it with him, clearly he had enough self-belief to understand that like he was doing something. 
it was important and it would be one day looked back upon. And so he had that knowledge even from the beginning. And um, I think you have to have that confidence in yourself whenever you put out creative work. Otherwise, it's really easy to get crushed. No, most creative work, you know, when you look at it, just objectively, you say, this shouldn't have been. Most creative work uh, to someone else, it, you know, so to one person might be amazing, to a lot of other people might just be, you know, um, you know, not non, uh, not amazing, ignorable, um, you know, unimpressive, uh, maybe even bad. A lot of people won't like, won't like your work. And in the beginning, creative work is fragile. You know, it takes time to get people to see it, to understand it. So keep working on the craft. Keep developing your ideas for the things you want to um, to get good at. And I was talking to a friend on the way, and he was just wishing me happy birthday. And we were talking about things that we're doing in our lives that are um, enjoyable outside of work. A lot of times we get so focused on work, and we're going to get into this podcast, which is mostly work-related in a minute. But a lot of times we get so focused on work, and we don't have anything else that we're doing outside of the thing that's making us money. And it can drive you a little crazy because if everything is connected to the dollar sign, then that's not bad, but it also it also affects and influences the way that you think and, and the decisions that you make, and you optimize for that. But what I really enjoy is optimizing for uh, creativity, pleasure, and enjoyment. Um, and those are things that sometimes cross paths with optimizing for money, but don't always. And when you can develop, uh, you know, I think hobbies are kind of like a, I don't know, loose word. A hobby kind of shows like, a flippant attitude. Like, I don't care that much about this. It's kind of just my hobby. Uh, I like to say like disciplines, or I like to think of them as like, you know, pursuits or just something, something like that's like deeply interesting to you. When you think of something that's deeply interesting to you, it'll give you so much, so much extra energy and just, just life, you know, in your life, if that makes sense. I know I'm kind of being redundant, but like more life on your years. And um, that is something definitely that I get through developing, you know, whether it's essays or write, writing essays or, you know, doing these shows or writing books. That's something that really, really feeds me. So there is a monetary component to it sometimes, but oftentimes it's just the creative expression. And your creative expression is part of your personality, which often doesn't go expressed because we're told to kind of like keep it in. We're told to uh, be more practical. We're told that it's not really worth uh, worth developing. And so many of us have this creative potential, which goes un or underexpressed. And so recently I've been optimizing for what feels good to me, for what is creatively fulfilling. And I have been, I've changed the way I look at my work from optimizing for what will make the most money uh, and hopefully fitting my creative skills into the model of what will make the most, the most money to optimizing for how I can express myself in the most interesting and fun and true way to me and then fitting the market into that, like finding where my unique way of expressing and delivering my messages and my value in creating products, but then doing it from what would feel best for me and then trying to find the way to monetize off of that rather than just thinking about money first. Because when I was thinking about money first, it changed the way that I was developing stuff. Like for the first maybe five years of my career, five or six years of my career, what I really got hooked into was creating info products. And info products are great because you can make courses, make a lot of money creating courses online. You build an email list, you sell your courses. You know, I'll show you how to freelance. I'll show you how to build an email list. I'll show you how to get press. I'll show you how to do all these things related to business. And people want to buy that and you can sell it and it works. But that was me fitting my uh, fitting my skill set into an existing model. And it felt good, but it felt incomplete. As I got older, trying to fit myself into that model, I felt less and less aligned with that and more and more unhappy with it. And so it's only been recently that I'm like, okay, let me flip the model on its paradigm or flip the paradigm on its head, flip the model on its head and say, let me just optimize for what's creatively the most interesting for me 
And that way, when I do truly figure out how to get the model going that I want for the business, I'm going to already be optimized for happiness and interest. So everything I do is going to come from that place and it's going to allow me to do better work because I'm going to be more creatively uh, and intuitively aligned with that, which is um, just as important as the logical side, which is like funnels and business and, you know, um, product development. Like that stuff is all important, but it's just as important as uh, creativity and intuition and alignment. These are all like more soft terms that we don't think about a lot, but they make a difference in our daily lives. So it's like changing the way you're aligning yourself. Anyway, all that to say, don't slack on developing your creative gifts because you will, you'll start to die a little bit inside if you if you don't express yourself. And what you might also find is some people, I'm going way off before we come back to the news. Some people will go their whole lives never even experiencing their true creative potential. You know, and that I think is almost is almost worse because you don't know what you don't know. I suggest that you find some way to express yourself outside of work. And um, and when you do, keep doing it and make it a lifelong pursuit, not just a hobby, but a lifelong pursuit, a discipline, something not to compare yourself against others with, but to measure your own progress with in life. Um, because that's really all there is anyway. We're, we like to think that we're doing this with friends, but we're really doing it alone. And that's okay. That's That can be comforting to know that you're the only one comparing uh, yourself to yourself. So anyway... And you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of when I teach the uh, the kids class <laughs> in jujitsu, and um, and sometimes I'll I'll be working on someone with a like a you know like a four year old or a five year old with a very simple move, and I'll, I'll look. I remember I said this to one of the girls uh, just last week, and I said, "Grace, that's really good, but don't worry about uh, what others are thinking of you. You know, you can't change the perception of others. You can only work on your self perception." <laughs> and I said this to her, and she's like five, and she looks at me. She's like, "What?" You know, she completely blank. And I was like, oh, that's right. You're five. I forgot. I, I was talking to you like I'm talking to the podcast. So um, I, I, I almost, I, ha- I had a, a grace moment here where I just, I talked to you about everything except what we're coming to talk about today, which is the news. So now let's get into it. So thank you for being here for this Friday recap. I really appreciate it. I have a bunch of really interesting things to talk to you about today. Uh, what was catching my mind was mostly um, tech, some, a little bit of political stuff, some crypto stuff. Let's dive into it. The first I have right here is a big headline from Gizmodo that says LinkedIn fined 1.8 million for paying women less than men. Um, the agreement allows the company to admit no guilt in shorting female pay, even as, like many tech companies, a majority of its employees are male. So, uh, from Gizmodo, the glass ceiling is looked at mighty sturdy over at LinkedIn or the glass ceiling is looking mighty sturdy over at LinkedIn. LinkedIn finally settled a complaint with the U.S. Department of Labor over allegations that it underpaid 686 women at its California offices from 2015-2017. That $1.8 million is equivalent to back wages for the employees plus interest over time, the DOL said in a release. Of course, as per the conciliation agreement, the settlement maintains LinkedIn is not uh, the settlement maintains LinkedIn is not admitting any wrongdoing. LinkedIn has agreed to analyze worker pay at its Cali offices and correct any pay discrepancies, as well as institute a new training program for all managers involved in employee pay. Around $1.75, or I'm sorry, $1.75 million is going to the affected employees' back pay, while $50,000 is going to be paid in interest. So this is interesting. What I find interesting about this is when you look at any systemic condition in hiring, for instance, recently I did a, a review on, um, on the Abercrombie documentary on Netflix, which was talking about um, just some of the, the racial issues in their hiring policies and whether those should be considered brand alignment or racist hiring practices. And so we had a debate on that on the show. And I would say that this is uh, further towards discrimination when we're looking at 
LinkedIn and what they're paying. The first thing I'm noticing is, you know, I, sometimes when I look at these these settlements, I think that we have a hard time understanding the scope of the companies that we're dealing with here because 1.8 million for LinkedIn is maybe half a day's worth of work for them or less. And even when we see some of these big companies, these you know, for instance, these banks or these huge, gigantic, like top 100 companies in the world getting fined millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, depending on what company is being fined, oftentimes that money isn't even really enough to affect the, the foundation of the business. And especially when they're fined these, because money is all relative. So when you're finding a multi-billion dollar company, 1.8 million, they're not going to feel that at all. And if they're being fined that money and they don't have to admit any wrongdoing, it basically is just amounts to, you know, a write-off for them. And I wonder at what point does the the justice system have any effect on these systemic indifferences or systemic imbalances if the monetary penalties don't really have an impact. When you look at, for instance, the banks being, you know, getting fined, for instance, for Wells Fargo um, having their whole mortgage scam. And this was a years ago, you can look into it, but it was pretty bad where they were basically like, um, just selling bad mortgages. Obviously, they also had a whole savings and loan, uh, I guess, debacle where they were giving out, they were creating faulty checkings and savings accounts or like they were creating um, fake checking and savings accounts under the names of like dogs and people's family members and all this crap. And there was this big scandal because the whole idea was cross-selling on Wells Fargo. And for a while, they were the golden child of the banking industry because they were making all these cross-sales and they were showing how many customers they were retaining, how many, how much money they're making in additional product sales, but really we were finding that they were just like uh, essentially signing up people for accounts without telling them. And anyway, there were all these uh, crazy um, things that had to happen where the CEO had to step down and they had to pay billions of dollars. But at the end of the day, it wasn't enough to even have a dent. Like it had some PR damage kind of, but then what happens is they'll pay, I don't know, maybe they'll pay like two or 300 million, which sounds like a crazy amount of money. And it is, but to them, it's nothing. And then the second thing I think is, where does this money go? Now, in the case of LinkedIn here, the 1.8 million is going, you know, supposedly the 1.75 of it is going to the affected employees back pay, which is great. But if, for instance, you have something where they're paying, you know, like the gov- like like Wells Fargo is paying back the government 100 million or they're, they're, they lose a case for 100 million, where does that money go? It goes 100 million goes back to the government. And who is that benefiting? That just goes back to, I mean, it's not going back to me. I'm not getting any of that. And wasn't, isn't Wells Fargo the one who defrauded the the consumers? I'll have to check into this. I mean, maybe there was a, a class action that resulted in some consumers getting some money. Uh, but a lot of times the money just goes back to the government because the government brings the suit. And then nobody really gets a benefit from that. Plus, it doesn't affect the actual company. They don't suffer any real losses. The CEO gets a golden parachute and gets out with, you know, some crazy bonus. Uh, and not only that, but when you look at just, just the uh, the sheer volume of of business that they're doing and the fact that they it's so interesting when they have whenever they have like a like a PR nightmare they'll completely just revamp their marketing. So if you look at Wells Fargo particularly now I like to study them because I like to study what the what they try to do in their rebrands. And first what they did when they got hit after the lawsuit was they uh you know after they lost the lawsuit because they only do this if they admit wrongdoing. They admitted wrongdoing in this so they had to fess up to it. If in LinkedIn's case they don't admit wrongdoing, it'll never come back up again. But in Wells Fargo's case, they had to because they were publicly getting, you know, mashed. So first they made all these uh, these ads and commercials and print ads and be- billboards that said something like, we're doing better. We're trying to serve you again. We, you know, sh- we're showing we're sorry. You know, they like actively admitted it. 
And maybe, you know, one argument could be like, oh, well, there's never anything that a company could do to make you satisfied. You just, you know, you're anti-corporate. I'm not really anti-corporate. I just don't like the way that they handle things. So they feel like it's only, it's opportunist. They only will say sorry if caught with the, their pants down, red-handed with no other explanation, you know? And I, an opportunist also because you see oftentimes these companies just point out the things and just make note of the things that are going to potentially give them some short-term windfall. So you see Wells Fargo super loud and proud with gay pride around June, and then that shit comes right down. Black History Month, all of a sudden, oh, they have, like, pictures in the windows of the banks of, like, a black family getting a checking account. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? You know, and so they just create all these symbols of, of you know, of emotions that aren't really connected to the banking itself. And then they do it for a short time to get that that boost for whatever the promotional period is, and then they take it away. Or if they're, you know, I guess it's all marketing to a certain extent, but especially when it has to do with banks and like financial institutions, I feel like it's even more diabolical. Um, so I, I could go, I could talk on and on about this. I have a whole theory on it. And you could even look into Noam Chomsky. He has a, um, a series, which we talked about on one of our, our Monday uh, Mindset episodes, where we talked about a manufacturing consent, which was a Noam Chomsky book from the 80s, from 1988, about how the media manufactures consent. There's a whole there's a whole um, there's a whole documentary worth of material on that. There's a whole personal philosophy on that. But anyway, that's LinkedIn. I'll be curious to see if any of these old tech standards change in the years as there's been a huge shift in representation, or at least in the um, call for representation across across tech in general. Big tech is notoriously um, bad at diversity, and even when you look at like I don't know, even recently, like when when Nipsey Hussle was shot. Uh, in 2019, he was working on a project called Vector 90, which was, uh, and I think believe is still operating, which is a co-working center for um, inner city youth in um, the Crenshaw district in LA. And part of the reason why he started that that uh, venture is because he wanted to create a pipeline from the inner city to big tech, because one of the excuses that big tech uses in a lot of their uh the questions that have been around the diversity and the hiring is that they don't have an adequate pipeline of students from Ivy League schools to these tech companies with a diverse background. And you really can't use that as an excuse in hiring, but it is at least a concern that we can address on the ground level when it comes to diversity and hiring is that we can produce uh, more students who have uh, more and better tech readiness. And in the case of you know women getting paid better at LinkedIn, you know, that just needs to happen. But I think in a general state, uh, from a general uh, statement and point of view, I think that not only do we need to be more aware that diversity is needed, but I actually want to see it in practice. You know, it's great that LinkedIn's getting slapped, but I want to see it in practice. And we'll see over the years uh, how it continues to go and if people continue to be held accountable for that or if we slide back into the same Well, I think maybe Web3 will help us to uh, democratize some of that, uh, some of that, that, uh, that hiring. Okay, now on to the next news bite. Okay, so this is coming interesting. Uh, from, let's see, this is coming out of, ooh, Coinfomania. So this is basically talking about uh, what's happening with Ethereum Layer 2 um, and how we're going to get fees to a, an acceptable level because we know that Ethereum fees are too high. Remember that there was that meme years ago of that political uh, um, candidate who was saying, the prices are too damn high. That's how people feel about uh, Ethereum. So here's the article from Coinfomania. Vitalik Buterin, Ethereum layer two fees must get to five cents to be acceptable. So 
Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, has, Ethereum, Ethereum, has recently opined that the gas fees charged on Layer 2 solutions has to be reasonably low to be acceptable. Buterin made his statement in reply to a tweet by the popular crypto proponent and investor Ryan Sean Adams, who has posted a list of gas fees required to bridge tokens to the Ethereum network using various Layer 2 protocols. For the longest time, the Ethereum network is notorious for its highly exorbitant gas fees and low scalability. Demand for block space on the Ethereum mainnet has witnessed a massive surge in recent months, and the gas fees have skyrocketed, denying many users access to some of the most coveted Ethereum-based DeFi and NFT protocols. To reduce fees, several network participants uh, have resorted to using Ethereum Layer 2 networks. These scaling solutions work side-by-side -side with the mainnet, Based on the list, the gas fees required were all below $1, with the lowest fee uh, being Metis Network at $0.02 cents and the highest being Arbitum Network or Arbitum 1 at $0.85. Cents. Although Ryan Adams posted out that he believes or pointed out that he believes that these rates are low, Buterin is convinced that they're not low enough. He knows that the gas fees charged by these L2 networks need to be below $0.05 cents to truly be acceptable. Buterin, however, admitted that, that the L2s are increasingly making progress in that aspect, adding that the newly proposed proto- uh, Denk sharding. The newly proposed proto-denk sharding would help to accelerate the move. Ooh, denk sharding, that sounds special. This new sharding, oh, I know what sharding is. This new sharding design introduces a significant simplification uh, compared to the previous designs. Sharding. Sharding, uh, I believe, is sharding is a method for distributing data across multiple machines. So let's see, sharding to support MangoDB uses sharding to support deployments with very large data sets and high throughput operations. Database systems with large data sets or high throughput applications can challenge capacity. So it's it's distributing data across the across the network. So that's sharding. Now you know. And let's see, finishing up that article here. Let's see. I mean, that's 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 basically it. Ethereum has been making conscious efforts to boost its network efficiency and scalability exponentially. Hence, its move to the proof of from the proof of work to proof of stake consensus mechanism. So this is interesting. And then the last thing we'll say, uh, keep coming back to reading it, stopping and coming back to reading it. Last month, the network disclosed that the final upgrade dubbed the Ethereum merge has been delayed again. Okay, so now we can finish talking about this because I did want to talk about the Ethereum merge fees and just different things around layer two. So this is an interesting concept because, listen, if we look at the crypto space in general, what is the purpose of Ethereum? Ethereum isn't necessarily a meant to be used as a currency. It's meant to be used as a programmable piece of, um, of, of data that you can store things on top of. And essentially, it is the entire network, the Ethereum virtual machine, is a the world's fastest, most complex, and coolest peer-to-peer -peer network. If you think of like Napster back in the day when you could all download things because everyone else had a small bit of it on their computer and you were all sharing the downloads, that's basically what Ethereum is, um, and you can build applications on top of it. You can build, uh, you can build new projects on top of the Ethereum network. And what we have found is that it's really interesting. It's uh, highly scalable. It's complex, but it's very expensive to run, and it's expensive because it takes a lot of energy, and that energy costs a lot of real efficiency and fuel. And because of that, plus a lot of other factors like, you know, volatility, uh, demand, burning the different tokens and things like that, the price of gas, which is the cost to make a single single transaction on the Ethereum network, goes up and down, but it's usually pretty damn high. So it could be, for instance, you know, if you want to make a transaction like a swap, for instance, you want to swap out one crypto for another, that swap, if you wanted to swap out a few hundred dollars worth of crypto, could be $50 or $25, which is a lot. 
And the idea is we're doing crypto partially because we want to remove fees and remove uh, some of the limitations. And to get into some of these projects on DeFi, which is decentralized finance, sometimes the fees are excessive and they are um, prohibitive to actually joining these projects, which are supposed to be about financial freedom. So there's that there's that juxtaposition. Now, layer two is a layer of the blockchain. So if you think of like um, Ethereum, Ethereum mainnet, that's a layer one. It's like the main street, okay? Now, if you think about layer two, or like you call it the main highway, layer two would be like an overpass, you know, like or, or like another overpass over an existing highway. And it's it's basically another blockchain that sits on top of an existing blockchain that can help speed and facilitate transactions better. And so what that means basically is like, let's say that there's a there's a, a traffic jam on the main highway, you can take an exit, go up on an overpass and come back, you know, basically where the accident's no longer a problem anymore. You can skip the skip the block. And layer twos are kind of like that. And so many layer two solutions are being developed as a response to some of the issues that are happening on Ethereum mainnet and it being slow and expensive. And Vitalik Buterin is basically saying, yeah, and the Ethereum uh, or and L2 solutions need to be inexpensive as well. And I think that's definitely true. Uh, I think that what this is just showing is the growing pains of a network itself. I also too sometimes forget how early we are in the process because you get again, you get caught into this bubble and this this when everyone's talking about it, you feel like the whole world knows about it. But really, you're only in your world. No one else experiences reality like you do. And if you're talking about something all day, you feel like everyone else is, even if they're not. And so sometimes I forget how early we are on this process. And we're seeing the the growth of a network in real time and a lot of those kinks that come with it. I um, haven't been actively checking into what Buterin is saying around Ethereum uh, and, and their their merge, uh, which is, I believe, what they're referring to is the, the transition from proof of work to proof of stake. And I didn't know that that had been delayed again. In fact, if I click on this article, I'm sure it will tell me uh, more about it. But we, but basically, there are two different mechanisms for for producing work on the blockchain, or for producing, um, I guess you could call it consensus on the blockchain. And one is called proof of work, which is basically um, uh, essentially completing algorithms like difficult math problems in order to unlock a certain layer or, or a certain block on the blockchain. And there's proof of stake which is essentially having a certain amount of, of a crypto or, or, or a, um, a token stored on the network to ensure that that transaction can go through and people um, basically staking that, that crypto or that token on the network to ensure that there's enough liquidity for it to pass through. And I believe that's the, the kind of like a layman's version of it. And I'm sure there's a more elegant example, a more elegant explanation. But the reason why we're moving from proof of work to proof of stake um, with Ethereum and with uh, some other solutions which are already proof of stake, but Ethereum is the main one because it's the big player in um, in altcoins. The, re the reason why we're moving from proof of work to proof of state is because proof of work takes so much energy to mine these difficult or to to solve these difficult equations that basically the entire the the entire use of Ethereum. I think I was reading that like just to run the Ethereum network for a year um, produces about as much waste as a country with 5 million people. Um, and so I believe, and I, I could be off on that, but I believe that someone said it's like the size of Ecuador. So like the to run the to run Ethereum, it takes so much energy uh, from the world, which creates waste. And there's, there is some criticism around that, um, but moving from proof, from proof of work is a more efficient way for energy to be used on the network. 
And it's also going to speed up the transaction process a lot as well. The network right now is pretty slow. And so these are all the reasons why we're moving over. Or we, as if I'm doing it, why, why they, why it is moving over, why it's transitioning. And by the time, you know, our kids, kids are listening to this, Ethereum will just be a thing that exists in the world, just like Coca-Cola or, you know, oxygen or whatever. And we won't be thinking about proof of work versus proof of stake because by then we'll be onto something way, way outside of that. But this is you seeing a network being built in real time. It's like we're watching a more advanced version of the internet being constructed in real time right in front of us. So it's pretty cool. And uh, we hope to see those fees super low and keep it moving. Hey there. Did you know that this isn't a podcast you're listening to? Okay, let me be more clear. This isn't just a podcast you're listening to. See, by listening to this show, you're actually part of the New Wave community. And because of that, I really want to meet you. IRL. In real life. Wouldn't it be nice to spend some time in a beautiful location, maybe a mansion by the sea with a chef-catered dinner, knowledgeable friends who really want to help you, a cello playing in the background, and, you know, an overall great ambiance? Doesn't that sound gorgeous? Well, we just created that at a recent New Wave dinner in LA, and I want you to be part of the next one. See, these dinner experiences are for entrepreneurs, career climbers, and creatives who want to build friendships with each other in real time, in real life, not just spending time chatting on the internet. We want to actually feel each other's presence, and we spend time together uh, bringing our business problems, bringing our half-baked ideas, bringing our creative questions. Then over a, a wonderfully catered meal, we work together as a group to help, help each other untie these knots and dial in our focus. And afterwards, we go and relax. We take a dip in a pool. I always get a place with a pool or a jacuzzi, have some drinks. We do a little bit of partying. And you will leave this experience with connections and brand new ideas and budding relationships. And you might even find your next co-founder or your next investor sitting right next to you. But more importantly, you are going to leave with a jumping off point, some momentum to go into this next phase of your life, this next chapter, uh, some new ideas that you didn't have before, something that's been enhanced that you know you have confidence in. Now you're going to build that inner momentum. And that's what's so important. And of course, when you're there, I'm also going to bless you with some new wave merch. If you've been looking at my photos, I'm constantly making new merch and new gear just to show the community that, you know, we got something special going here. So make sure you check out the next new wave dinner experience. Now we're doing these all over the country and potentially all over the world. We did our first one in LA. We're going to be doing them in Austin, New York, Miami, and a few other cities. Plus most likely we're going to hit the UK or Europe. So make sure you go to newwaveentrepreneur.com to check out all the dates. We'll have them all listed there. And of course, you can uh, you can sign up. There's going to be about 10 to 12 people per location. So this isn't a massive um, conference. This is a 10 to 12 person event. And that means that it's purposely designed for you to meet people, to engage with them, and to have a whole hell of a lot of fun. So make sure you check out newwaveentrepreneur.com to get all the dates and locations for the next one. I, I believe... Depending on when you're listening to this, the next one is in Austin this summer, and it'll be all over the country. So sign up, and now let's get to the episode. Okay, on to the next news bite here. So this is interesting. This is coming out of uh, ARS Technica, and this is cool. It says, every ISP in the U.S. has been ordered to block three pirate streaming services. A federal judge has ordered all internet service providers in the U.S. to block three pirate streaming services operated by Doe defendants, which means they just, you know, they're not being identified, who never showed up to court and hid behind false identities. The blocking orders affect Israel.tv. There's a few other Israel, Israeli sites here. And, uh, you can look in the article and, and the show notes, uh, as well as related domains listed in the rulings. Let's see. Each ruling provides a list of 96 ISPs that are expected to block the websites, including Comcast, Charter, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile. But the rulings say that all ISPs must comply 
even if they aren't on the list. So, you know, this is interesting. I can I can go and I can continue to uh, read the article. I want to talk about the concept though, because what we're really looking at is we're looking at um, we're looking at free internet. Now, obviously, we don't want hackers or pirate streaming services necessarily, depending on what they're they're doing. Like, you don't want people necessarily stealing IP or, or you know, digital theft. I don't think is cool. But at the same time, what I do think is interesting is that when you look at pirate streaming services, pirate streaming services are the foundation of what has created so much of the technology that we use and enjoy so freely now and that we wouldn't really be able to live without. And we had this last article that was talking about how Ethereum was, or Ethereum Ethereum feeds, and I was mentioning how Ethereum is essentially just like a really advanced Napster or um, the way that PO, POS, proof of stake works, is kind of like Napster. And now we're looking at ISPs now blocking pirate services in the next article. And I think it's so interesting because the the government will block these things. And yet, and yet corporate uses these models to create even better businesses. And um, what I think is so interesting, too, is how the government can have a real say over what is allowed to, to exist online. I think when we think about the internet, we think about it as, at least we did for a while, as a free-for-all space, a free creative space where you can put any information out there that you want. But the more you look into it, the more you realize that there are definite restrictions in what's being placed online, um, if not in the individual content that you're creating, but just the types of websites that can even exist. Uh, because the the ISPs, the internet service providers that are running in the background of the internet, we don't really realize at any given time, how much of the internet that we are uh, experiencing is viewed through maybe five to 10 different portals from Google to Facebook to Amazon to something from a GoDaddy platform. These are all like the major platforms which run the internet and that the internet streams and is viewed through like portholes in a ship. And the government can tell these ISPs or these different big players to, you know, don't show things or remove these from your hosting sites or don't list these. And depending on what the temperature is and the the conditions are between the government and that company, a lot of times the company will have to comply and they will. And so it's interesting that we feel that there's ultimate security and potentially even freedom uh, with our with the internet. But oftentimes it's not so much. And I, I I think about how much of the internet is being filtered by a small group of people who make decisions on what can and can't um, be shown and extending a little bit on this, you know, a little bit further out the out of the direction of directly what's happening with these ISPs. It's a great book written uh, called Weapons of Math Destruction, which talk about algorithms and black boxes and how these types of inanimate, non-organic things make so many of the decisions that affect humans um, in our day-to-day lives. So, for instance, with these like um, algorithms that create uh, test. Um, test scores uh, or, or or that grade tests um, to the, the ones that um, that determine loan worthiness in uh, real estate or or for banks um, to all these different types of uh, they're supposed to be impartial algorithms that end up really having an impact on the lives of many humans and then to a certain point getting out of the control of the humans themselves. Um, or at least not under the conscious control. Uh, I, I find that, that that happens a lot too, or that, that it seems that that happens a lot too, and we, we're not even thinking about these things are running in the background. 
and uh, the same thing with these ISPs. So anyway, I thought that was interesting that, that the government can't even block that and on to the next uh, news bit. Okay, this one coming out of Reuters. White House to boost support for quantum technology while boosting cybersecurity. I'm kind of on a tech and cybersecurity uh, kick today. So the White House on Wednesday will announce a state of measures to support quantum technology in the United States while laying out steps to boost cybersecurity to defend against the next generation of supercomputers. The U.S. and other nations are in a race to develop quantum technology, which could fuel advances in artificial intelligence, materials, uh, and chemistry, materials science and chemistry. Quantum computers, a main focus of the effort, can, can operate millions of times faster than today's advanced supercomputers. Unlike a classic computer, which performs calculations one at a time, a quantum computer can perform many calculations at the same time. President Joe Biden will sign an executive order aimed at strengthening the National Quantum Initiative, Initiative Advisory Committee, the government's independent and expert advisory body for quantum information science and technology. The order places the advisory committee directly under the authority of the White House, helping uh, ensure the president and other key decision makers have access to the latest information. The White House is expected to name the members of the boards in upcoming weeks. Biden will also sign a national security memorandum outlining the administration's plan to address the risks posed by quantum computers and America's cybersecurity. Whew, man, a senior administration official said that research shows that quantum computers will soon reach a sufficient size and level of sophistication needed to break much of the cryptography that currently secures digital communications on the internet. Quote, the presidential directives being released will help us balance the scientific and economic imperatives to move fast with our obligation to protect our people, communications, and investments. That, this is really super interesting because I've been thinking about quantum computing for a while and I think one of the things that we don't expect about quantum computing is that we don't even have a frame for how it's going to impact our society. Grimes was on a podcast with Lex Friedman a couple uh, days ago and she was saying how she believes that we're no longer homo sapiens, but we're like homo techno. We've kind of evolved now to be integrated with computers where you know, we, would, we wouldn't survive as well without them. Like if you took them away, human beings wouldn't do as well as we did before we had them. And that's a very good point. And I think that it's hard for us to even imagine what life will be like with quantum computing because we can still only somewhat think in a linear sense of like, we can only think about things going faster. But fast and I guess um, omnipresent are two different things. Like having a fast Google search is different than having Google be alive. You know, <laughs> having they retrieve the information quickly is different than it being, um, you know, almost just organically baked in. And that's kind of what we're doing with quantum computing. It's getting so fast that it's, it's moving past, past just speed to in, into like a living organism, which is AI, I guess. And quantum computing is what's going to allow AI to take hold. One of the things I'm I'm curious about is with all this crypto we've been discussing, how will quantum computing affect that? Because most of the crypto that we're working with now, all of that stuff's been developed on linear machines. So I would imagine it'd be very easy for crypto to be just broken by quantum computing. So that's something to think about. Two, um, I, I think this is what the article is getting at. If data is the weapon of the future or the weapon of the present, then, then quantum computing is the atom bomb, you know? You can do more damage with access to a community's data than you can by, by bombing them in theory because the obviously like physical warfare is the worst, but there's also a lot of collateral damage from that to your, your people and other, like it's messy, it's unintended targeting. 
But data can be very specific. You can do things, you can do everything from, you know, swing an election to shut off a water grid to, you know, stop supply chains to, you know, cause planes to crash. You can do all this stuff with data. That's, it's basically magic. I mean, and we've created this. I'm not going to go too deep into this because, you know, I go off on a tangent, but we've created all this stuff. Even when I think about computing, I know engineers will say it's simple how it works, but it's really not simple. The fact that zeros and ones are creating these computer programs doesn't really make sense. I mean, it makes sense when you explain it and you write it on a board. I, I can intellectually understand it, but it's still magic. It doesn't really make sense. And then even if you think about like the abstraction that we live on a, on a daily basis, we're not, I know we're talking about uh, quantum computing, but even the fact that I do most of my work on the computer, there's nothing, there's no physical evidence that I've done anything. It's all in a way metaphysical because I, I go on the computer and I type something and the typing goes on a digital interface. The digital interface goes on a digital screen. It goes out in someone's. It goes out over the airwaves. There's not even cables a lot of times anymore. It's all just kind of like if you were to if you were to to blow up the the world tomorrow, you probably have some architectural landmarks still left, but all the data would be gone. And the data is what we spend most of our time and our day in. And so we're living kind of like I'm just saying, I think mostly or at least partially in a techno world now. And so quantum computing is going to allow us to really engage with that world differently. And even if you think about like, okay, you want to talk about, you know, tech security and as it relates to quantum computing, they're working obviously on things like Neuralink right now, which will connect the computer to the brain. And then when quantum computing is able to connect a quantum computer to your brain, what will that be like? I mean, your brain is already essentially a quantum computer, and but it's a quantum computer that doesn't that to a certain extent is organic, so it has a mind of its own. It's like having a quantum computer that you have to tame, and you're constantly having to like get it to do what you want it to do. Whereas if you had direct access to a quantum computer outside of yourself, you'd be probably have more command over it in some ways. Um, just like we have our phone, and and Alan Watts was saying this in one of his lectures. He said, you know, they thought that our are we just going to keep evolving until our heads got bigger and bigger? But really, we just put our brain outside of our head and it's become, you know, external devices. And that's become really our cell phone. There was no cell phone when Alan Watts was talking about this, but he said basically that we would create the brain outside of our head. And if quantum computing becomes a thing, then that's, I mean, that's the definition of that. We're already doing that with the phone. So imagine, imagine having a quantum phone. You know, you're already on your phone all the time to the point where I'm on in a toilet. And I will even, you know, because I want to listen to music. I'll take the phone in the shower sometimes and I'll, I'll play it in there and I'll listen to music. It's, but like the fact, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a, a baby that never leaves my fucking hip. You know, it's always there. Um, I'm sanitizing it because, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, I have my hand gripping on this thing all day. It's probably gross. I got to put some alcohol on it. It's constantly attached to me. It might even be more convenient if it was in my brain, but I don't think that's very good for me. But I think that um, our, our coming generation, you know, maybe not my kids, probably, but certainly their kids would be to the point where it's completely normal. I mean, I grew up in the last generation to not have the internet, uh, the last the last childhood of no internet. And there's nothing wrong with uh, growing up with the internet. It just creates a different environment. You know, when I teach kids, uh, you know, at night, and we'll, we'll go to, I'll teach the kids classes, and I'll see that before they come to class, some of them are in, like, the little play area, and they'll be on the Oculus. And I'm like, holy crap, you are starting your life with the Oculus and I have one, and I probably used it four times in the past year. Um, and I think that I'm like my parents in that way, where I'm on my cell phone a lot, but they're on it less than I am. I'm on social media a lot, they're on it less than I am, because they didn't kind of grow up with it. It was an add-on in their lives. 
virtual reality, augmented reality, and to a certain extent, quantum computing will be an add-on in my life, will be an add-on to someone that's older than me and after that. But to someone who's growing up with it, it'll be part baked into their growing experience. And so it will seem completely normal, like a fish in water. And I can't imagine what the world's going to be like when our companion in, through daily life is, is no longer just a phone, but it's a quantum computer. And, and, and what that will mean for our access to information, what that will mean for our our resources, what that will mean for our abilities, but it will also create, I think, a potential for uh, what they call like an attack vector because you don't, if you're connecting your brain to a computer, then your brain could get hacked. You know, I mean, or there could be bugs. Even even driving in the Tesla, like I know it kind of gets, we, I've talked about uh, Elon Musk property twice in this episode. And I said I wouldn't say his name, I said it again, but I feel like he's, you know, when you're talking about tech, he comes up all the time now. But even with the Tesla, you know, Driving the car, I really like it, but there was a, a point, there was one one time where I was driving it and it bricked on me, just like a phone did, where I was driving it. I was actively driving it. Luckily, I was in a parking lot. And just as I was about to turn out into the street, my wheels were turning and I was putting the nose of the car out into the street. The I, I accidentally pressed two buttons at the same time, like I was playing a video game and I was trying to unlock a cheat code. I pressed the two buttons at the wrong time and it bricked the, the car like it was a phone. And it said like system error, system error, something like that, where the wheel stopped moving, it stopped responding to any of my commands, and it just completely froze. And then I had I sat there for like eight minutes while it rebooted. And that's never happened before or again. And I called them when that was happening. They're like, yeah, I think you should take it into the shop. I'm like, yeah, no shit. But that just that's an experience where it's it's unlikely and rare, but it is a computer you're dealing with now. It's not necessarily a mechanical device as much. It's certainly a cyborg car if not completely just a computer because you can't access the uh the, the motor anymore the engine it's it's under the um it's under the car in the back it's not in the front anymore there's a front trunk and in a way i kind of lost something with that because i'd like to have the autonomy of being able to fuck with stuff under the car like you know i can't do everything i can do the basics i, I can at least look and make an assessment what's wrong with it you know open it up and say what's smoking what seems out of place you know shit my my grandfather uh he had his car he used to ride around in the in the in, in the hood of the car where the engine is, he would keep a, like a rag in there because he would be checking the oil or whatever, just keep a rag in the car. I'm like, isn't that a fire hazard? But like there's something to having the engine, being able to get your hands dirty, checking the dipstick. I mean, I used to change my own oil, change my own uh, brakes. Like I can do that stuff. But then also another thing I realized I'm going off on the, we're talking about cybersecurity. The main thing is I want to say, you don't want a computer in your brain because even having a full car computer is a bad thing. But yeah, I can't imagine having a, a glitch in your brain uh, or or your brain gets frozen because it's trying to load a new update or you get hacked or something like that. It's just like, man, that that just sounds you know, just sounds like a like a horrible, horrible way to 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 like feel in your mind. But then if you're used to it, you're kind of like, you know, if you grow up with it, you'd be more, I guess, attuned to it. But who wants to have another place for advertisers to get in? But I think it's interesting that the White House is taking quantum computing computing seriously. I, I sometimes wonder when they have these committees, do they just do they just make the committee to say that we're making the committee, or do they actually do anything the committee recommends? Because usually the committee comes in and they recommend they do something and they say, that's great, we don't have money for it, and then they don't do it. You know, they put all these committees together on like environmental safety or whatever. But mostly the we're still trashing everything. So it's like, what do these committees do? Anyway, I think think it's interesting to think about uh, quantum computing and think it's interesting to consider what that will mean because guess what? If you're listening to this, you will live in that age. You will be at least part of it. And um, so I hope that you uh, that you take what you can from, you know, from the age that we're in now. And remember that there's a certain joy to 
uh, analog living that I don't think will ever go away. And maybe generations will get further and further away from, but you'll find potentially even more refreshing the more time you spend in the matrix, that your time out is that much more meaningful. But hopefully, uh, quantum computing will also give us many of the benefits of technology. And, and again, I want to pose you this question as well as we wrap up today. And I've been posing it on, on the podcast several times now, but do you believe that the speed of technology and the evolution of technology must go in lockstep with the evolution of humanity? And does do human beings uh, must uh, must human beings evolve our technology in order to evolve ourselves? You know, is our technology only an extension of us? Can it possibly get in the way of our evolution, or must they be symbiotic and go hand in hand? What are your thoughts? Put it in the comments if you're listening to this uh, via streaming on the blog. And if you liked today's episode, make sure you leave a comment and a review. I had a lot of stuff to talk about that I could dump all day. and uh, But I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it for you. Uh, jump on in and surf this new wave because the water is warm and the tide is rising. Daniel, out. <laughs>